But I, I want to start talking, just, just preface this by talking about why, why are we doing this? Why is Tesla, uh, why does Tesla exist? Why, why are we making electric cars? Uh, why does it matter? Um, it's because it's very important to accelerate the transition to sustainable transport. It really, really, really is. It, I mean, this, is, this is really important for the future of the world. Tesla are a company at the forefront of the shift to renewable energy. In addition to electric cars, they're also investing in solar power and battery storage. So PowerPack is kind of like our industrial strength uh, uh, battery storage system. Um, and uh, we, we did the, uh, the biggest battery storage system in the world in, in Australia. And so we expect this to ultimately be uh, really uh, uh, critical for transitioning the world to sustainable energy. Obviously, you have to have sustainable energy production and sustainable energy consumption. So the sustainable energy production, you need the solar panels plus the battery because the sun doesn't shine at night. And then uh, those electric cars, you know, electric vehicles in general. Yeah. So, but I mean, the, the really exciting thing is if you have, with, with solar, bat, solar, solar plus battery plus electric vehicles, we have a fully sustainable future. This is a future you can feel really excited and optimistic about. I think it really matters. Yeah. Elon Musk's vision of a sustainable future is an inspiring one, and it's not unachievable. But if they're going to help get us there, Tesla must become a sustainable company. So what does the future hold for Tesla? From Lawson Media, this is Supercharged, a show about power, conflict, and the people who are driving change. I'm Christopher Lawson, and this season we're exploring electric vehicles and how Tesla is forcing the entire automotive industry to move towards an electric future. This is Episode 6, Mission Critical. Why are we making electric cars? Uh, why does it matter? The mission of Tesla is to accelerate the advent of renewable energy. Tesla will be dealing with a more competitive landscape than ever before. Ultimately, Tesla needs to go bankrupt in order to become sustainable. Can Tesla survive without Elon? I believe right now it probably can't. It's financially insane to buy anything other than a Tesla. We're in the middle of an environmental crisis, and many countries around the world are striving to reduce their carbon footprint. Part of the solution is a move to renewable energy, and Tesla are leading the way, with home solutions like their Powerwall battery storage and solar roof, to large-scale offerings with power pack for businesses and utilities. Electric vehicles also play a vital role in reducing emissions as well, given transportation is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Once they're on the road, EVs produce zero emissions. But if we're going to shift towards mass adoption of electric vehicles, as Tesla is striving to do, there are still environmental impacts that need to be minimised as the EV industry continues to grow. We definitely don't want to see ourselves creating new environmental problems when we're trying to solve another one. But overall, electric vehicles still do have a net positive environmental impact. This is Elsa Dominish, Senior Research Consultant at the Institute for Sustainable Futures in Sydney. Elsa co-authored a 2019 report on the responsible sourcing of minerals for renewable energy. 
It found that the EV and battery industries need to address the environmental and social impacts of their supply chains, as the demand for key metals used in EV manufacturing is projected to rise. The main metals used in the batteries for electric vehicles are cobalt, nickel, lithium and manganese. And there's also rare earths used in the permanent magnets, uh, which are part of the generator and the motor. And there's also, of course, lots of typical metals such as steel and aluminium used in the body of the car itself. So as uh, the demand for renewable energy technologies grow, we're projected to see a large demand for the metals required to manufacture them. And so in order to minimise this, we can look at strategies including recycling, so making sure we're capturing those metals at end of life. Also uh, looking at efficiency, so reducing the amount of metals we use in each technology. And the industry is already working very hard at this, um, partly to reduce costs, but also just make the technologies more efficient. The first step in the supply chain is mining, and right from the start, EV manufacturers are already leaving a global footprint through sourcing the materials they need. They all come from different mines around the world, depending on the type of metal. Uh, So lithium typically comes from South America, it's also mined in Australia. Uh, Nickel comes from various countries, including across the Pacific. Cobalt typically comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and rare earths are predominantly mined in China. But they're, of course, very complex global supply chains, so they're being mined in many different places around the world. And depending on the type of metal, mining can have far-reaching consequences on the environment and local communities. There's communities around the world that are feeling the impacts of mining because renewables are growing so quickly and, and we do need to shift to them really quickly in order to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. We want to make sure that this doesn't just scale up really rapidly into new mining that's done not in a responsible way. So some of the impacts we've seen, um, the most well-known are, of course, around cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo. There's a lot of heavy metal contamination of the soils and water that's led to a lot of health problems for the local communities, even communities that are not directly involved in mining, but those impacts have spread throughout the community. And then if we are needing to you know, get these metals from new mines, um, making sure that's done responsibly. So that includes the social side of it, so looking at uh, labour rights and um, good work conditions, particularly for metals such as cobalt where they are done often in an informal way or sort of hand-dug mines, which can be very dangerous. And there's also many cases of child labour for that. And then, of course, there's the environmental side, so making sure that um, the wastes are properly stored from the mining process As well as responsible sourcing, recycling is the most important strategy to reduce both the environmental impact and the demand for these metals. We can recycle batteries from electric vehicles and most manufacturers are putting schemes in place. But there's, I guess, a couple of tricky things to note. And one is that while we may be recycling the battery, we're not necessarily recovering everything we can at the end of that process. So generally, recyclers are focusing on recovering the cobalt and the nickel because they're the more valuable metals, whereas lithium, manganese, even copper and aluminium are sometimes not recovered from the process. We do have the technology to make that happen. It's just that it's not necessarily economic because it's cheaper to get those metals from a new mine rather than from a recycled source. 
There's also the potential to prolong the life of EV batteries, which may still be utilised long after they've been removed from a vehicle. So, for example, batteries from electric vehicles, once they've you know, lost a bit of their capacity, but they're still working, they're just not quite as efficient as one would like for use in a car, they can then be used for stationary storage. And when they're on the ground and not being driven around, it doesn't quite matter that they're less efficient because they're not taking up as much valuable space as they would be in a car. And so a lot of manufacturers are, are looking to this, whether that's using the batteries, say, for storage at a utility scale is quite a promising option. For these strategies to be implemented successfully, EV manufacturers like Tesla must take a proactive approach and plan ahead for the future. But the good news is, many companies are already taking action. Yeah, I think manufacturers, particularly for electric vehicles, as opposed to other types of renewables, can have a really big influence on their supply chains. I think that a lot of them are very concerned about making sure that the products that they're supplying and selling do have good environmental and social credentials, and they're looking to make sure that they're sourced responsibly. Of course, they can go further on this, but I think it's encouraging to see that this is something that the industry is aware of. Governments could also play a part in assisting the auto industry through the EV transition. Governments at the moment don't play a huge role, but they definitely could play a larger role. For example, in the EU, they have guidance on how to make sure that things are sourced responsibly if they're coming from conflict-affected areas, but not many other countries are really looking into it. But governments also can have a really big role to play in terms of making sure that manufacturers and suppliers have a system in place for dealing with the technologies at end of life so that we avoid you know, creating this huge waste stream and we can recover the metals from those technologies at end of life and reuse them for new ones. So there's been some small schemes in parts of the US and the EU does have a an end of life scheme for batteries, but a lot of other countries, this is something that they need to focus on in the short term, particularly as these technologies are set to to come online so rapidly. In 2018, Bloomberg NEF published a report on the outlook of electric vehicles, which projected that 57% of all new car sales will be electric by 2040. And EVs will make up over 30% of the global fleet. So how will our current system support that transition? And what needs to happen to get there? Well, most urgently, we need to look at infrastructure, not just more charging stations, but the electric grid itself. So having a large number of electric vehicles on the grid is going to put an extra load on the grid. And with more than 10% of electric vehicles, our modelling has shown that this could lead to failures in areas of the electric grid. This is Marcus Brazil. I'm an associate professor at the University of Melbourne in electrical and electronic engineering. Marcus has used mathematical modelling to project how the electric grid might react to a rollout of EVs. I'll let him explain. There's two parts of it. One is um, sort of optimization models in which we basically try to create a mathematical model of how the, the grid as a whole and the demands on the grid work. Um, but in a way that we can actually then apply optimization methods to this to find out how to 
to run this grid as efficiently as possible. Um, so we make a whole lot of simplifying assumptions, but assumptions that are sort of very close to what actually happens and use that to then find optimization algorithms and um, control strategies for running the grid in a really efficient way. Uh, we then have simulation models which simulate the behavior of the grid and electric vehicles and traffic and so on uh, in a much more realistic way. We, we use um, real data from electric power companies and data that's been collected on traffic conditions and then we're able to use this to get a very realistic idea of sort of how well these algorithms would actually work uh, in practice. The issue of whether our electrical grids can cope with the influx of EVs is something that's been looked at around the world. Another person looking at this impact is Hauke Engel from McKinsey & Company in Germany. So when, when people talk about e-mobility, of course, there's, there's many questions around the, the potential hurdles for, for EV uptake, right? There's, there's questions around consumer acceptance. Do people actually like to drive electric or do they prefer kind of the, the roar of an internal combustion engine? Can uh, the, the OEMs actually produce the, the kind of cars and, and the volumes of cars that, that people might want? Um, what do we do about the, the batteries? You know, is, is there, are there sufficient raw materials for the batteries? Can we produce them in, in sufficient volumes? And of course, one question that always comes up is, you know, can we actually power all these, these electric vehicles that, that we'd like to see on the roads? Uh, so we set out to, to cast a closer look at this and understand what the potential challenges are um, in terms of the, the energy system if we saw a, a large-scale introduction of, of electric vehicles. Hauke's research focused specifically on the German market and looked at questions around whether Germany would need additional power generation to support the huge numbers of EVs set to hit the market and whether the grid would need additional support on the most extreme days and whether the local power grids, the ones in your local community, could handle having people come home from work and plugging in their EVs at the same time. What we found was that on the total power demand uh, side, yeah, so the question, do we need extra power stations? That's actually not the case. Uh, so the, 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 the relative increase in, in power demand, uh, even in a high electric vehicle penetration scenario, is only a few percentage points. Yeah, and that's something that you know, we can either easily, over time, add a little bit of generation capacity, and that's absolutely not a, not a, a showstopper, or it's actually within the slack that's currently already in the system. Yeah? And, and likewise, the question of the, of the, the system, the macro-wide peak load, um, uh, so the, 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 the amount of generation capacity required at, at the, the most extreme day of the year, that also doesn't increase a lot. Again, only increase in, in a few percentage points, and that's well covered within current system margins. Yeah? So it's it's called the spinning reserve. Yeah? So the, kind of the the safety margin that that's already built into the into the energy system, into the generation capacity, can easily handle that that, that increase. However, what we did find is that uh, challenges will arise at the at the local level. Right? So if if you look at kind of the the the, the last mile of of power supply, um, both in the in the residential world, uh, so when people plug in at home in the evening, um, you might get some issues there. Uh, and if you look at public charging stations, there again, we, we expect to see some issues with the grid um, if, if that's not proactively addressed in the planning stage. 
The issue that Hacker identified was around how you deal with that moment when everyone owns an EV, they come home at night and they plug it in, and then they go and do other things in their house, and it's kind of this last mile of the energy grid where the real problems could exist. Now, when the the people living in that area, when they start buying EVs, they typically charge those in the evening, right? Because people use the car usually during the day, then they come back in the evening and plug in and start charging. Um, now, the complication is that they also start doing loads of other things at the same time. Yeah? So they come home, they, 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 they put the kettle on, they, they put the stove on, they put the AC on, they put the TV on. Yeah? So you anyway already have the, the peak demand of power uh, in these evening hours. Yeah? So that's, that's already the, the, the time of the day that determines kind of what the, the transformer needs to be designed for. And now you're adding on top the, the extra energy demand to charge the electric vehicle. So that is you know, beyond a certain level of, of, of EVs that you have in that area, that'll cause trouble for the transformer because it'll, it'll simply increase the, that, that peak load, that evening peak load beyond what the transformer is designed to handle. Given that there could be an impact on load, the question then becomes, what do we do to make sure EVs don't place too much strain on the energy grid? Through modelling the data, Marcus learned that our current grids may actually support a large adoption of electric vehicles, but it would require a different approach in order to manage that new demand. Well, the idea is to basically change the philosophy of how we run the grid. So to have a grid that has more demand management built into it, so more control over, over the demand. So where possible, we look at loads that are have some flexibility in them where we, where we can actually change when the power is actually required and even sort of making small changes of just a few minutes um, to when you actually demand energy from the grid can make an enormous difference in terms of maintaining the ability of the grid to provide the required load. So this idea of demand management uh, through careful control algorithms and optimization algorithms is the way in which we'd be able to sort of cope with these new extra loads without threatening the, the requirements of other users, and in particular important users like hospitals and so on. This type of demand management has been utilised before. In California, for instance, they've been able to stabilise the grid during peak periods in summer, when everyone powers up their air conditioners. And in the case of electric vehicles, Marcus says that it could even be more effective. So the idea is that electric vehicles are actually sort of one of the most flexible loads that we would add to the the grid in that you don't need to start charging your vehicle the minute you get home. You might plug in when you get home, but you actually won't need your vehicle again typically until sort of eight or ten hours later when you're next heading back to work. So there's a lot of flexibility as to when the system can actually start charging the vehicle. And by allowing the system to use that flexibility, so to delay charging or to interrupt charging at various times uh, in order to to make sure that the grid doesn't become overloaded, um, it means that we can actually increase the penetration of electric vehicles to, say, up to at least 80% or even more um, without actually needing to increase the capacity of the grid. Implementing this across the system comes down to governments and power companies, investing in the infrastructure needed to make it all happen. But electric vehicles may provide additional support that could benefit the entire grid. It's certainly possible that electric vehicles could be part of the sort of battery storage systems that will 
um, helps support the, the grid, particularly sort of just helping sort of smooth out uh, sort of demand and voltage and current at particular times of day. So it, you wouldn't necessarily be needing to draw large amounts of energy from electric vehicles. But this could be an, sort of another source of energy that uh, can be used to help sort of rebalance the grid. Hauke says another way that you can deal with demand is to change the incentives around power usage. However, the more practical solution is to control when EVs charge so that the load can be balanced throughout the night. Basically, it boils down to you can either use incentives to get people to proactively change what they do. Yeah? So you can change the, the, the power tariffs. Or on the other hand, the other solution would be to use what's called smart charging. So it's essentially control when vehicles charge. Another way to stabilise demand is with batteries, either batteries that might be placed next to a transformer on the local grid, and that kicks in when the power demands might strain the local network, or battery storage on your home. Tesla are one of the more prominent when it comes to battery technology in households, and at a grid scale with projects like the Hornsdale Power Reserve in South Australia. LG are another manufacturer who do home batteries and are in many ways a more viable alternative for homeowners looking to get their money back. However, Tesla's strategy clearly has a path when the company can influence the whole supply chain of your power, from grid-scale storage right down to the battery in your electric vehicle. Battery technology has improved dramatically in recent years, but in regards to EVs, they still need further development in order to achieve the longer distances we're used to with internal combustion vehicles. Um, Internal combustion engines are seeing the end of their days, uh, but we do need to find ways in which we can have the same sort of flexibility in terms of being able to travel long distances and giving the sort of freedom of movement that those vehicles have. And it should, should be possible. I mean, there's no problem with the sort of um, power and speed of electric vehicles. Uh, the real problem is just with recharging the batteries. Um, and so I think that's really sort of the important technological uh, challenge that um, is presented to us at the moment. At least sort of within cities and for everyday commuting and so on, electric vehicles are already looking like a, a sort of really good alternative to the combustion engine. But the important thing to take away here is that power companies and our governments need to anticipate the growth in EV adoption and plan ahead. It's really important that they anticipate increases in in demand as electric vehicle um, usage increases and that they basically use this as an opportunity to improve the way in which we run the grid as a whole. The potential pitfall would be to promote electric vehicles to allow more and more people to take up electric vehicles without having any demand management on the grid. So without actually looking at the way in which we provide power. So I mean, I I see electric vehicles as being an opportunity not only for greener transport, um, but also for uh, as an opportunity for improving the way that the grid as a whole works. Uh, and that we start building in more demand management, having a grid that's sort of much more responsive to the needs of the people who are using that power and not just sort of blindly providing the power that they seem to require without actually looking at, okay, is there some flexibility in that demand and can we actually shift that demand in order to make sure that the grid as a whole is is as responsive and um, robust as possible. After the break, we'll look at what lies ahead for Tesla and the rest of the EV industry.
Despite their checkered past, it's now clear that electric vehicles are here to stay, in large part thanks to the resurgence led by Tesla. But can we say the same about Tesla itself? Will they survive the short term and live to see the world of the future they envisioned? In order to secure their own future, one of two things needs to happen. Either they produce and sell enough cars to be self-sustaining, or they continue their current trend of raising money through investors and pre-sales whenever they need it. The question is, which outcome is most likely? Running a company, especially a car company, in such a way uh, where you have to be raising a billion dollars or more every 12 to 18 months is a very, very poor way to, to run a company. And I think that's one of the lessons here is that, is that the venture capital model um, that works for startups, uh, particularly software startups, is really poorly adapted to the auto industry. That's Edward Niedermeyer, author of Ludicrous. You know, I, I blame the venture capital approach as much as I do Tesla for them sort of ending up on this fundraising treadmill. And I think it's one of the biggest questions about their future because if a downturn, a cyclical downturn in the economy happens and capital is no longer as easy to get, and keep in mind, um, with the exception of 2008, 2009, we've been in an environment where capital has been uh, sloshing all over the place. It's been very easy, especially for technology companies, to raise money anytime they need to, particularly if they have a uh, very well-known person like Elon Musk uh, raising the money. And I think the real risk is if Tesla is not able to have the discipline to operate efficiently and to be profitable every quarter, then the risk is, is that when the downturn comes and capital is not as, as available, that they will once again, as they, as they always do, need to raise another one to two billion dollars and it simply won't be there. This is where you pay the price of a company not being financially sustainable. Part of the improvement in profitability is a result of cost-cutting measures, like Tesla reducing the size of their workforce, which Elon Musk announced at the start of 2019, and a focus on streamlining their production. But they get to achieve an annual profit. The company's ability to raise billions of dollars through increasing their share price is impressive. But that can't last forever, without realising some more tangible return for investors. They've also promised so much and they've also uh, accustomed investors to expect such huge rapid growth and massive, massive ambitions, it it's actually would be very difficult for them to dial back and to say, okay, we're only going to grow as much as, as our profits allow us to. We're not going to raise more money. My fear is that they've painted themselves into a corner where they have to stick to this story that they can grow and grow and grow infinitely. Uh, and eventually become a 10 million unit a year automaker um, because that's sort of what they sold investors on. And sort of becoming financially sustainable right now pushes the timeline for, for becoming a 10 million uh, a year automaker out decades and not, you know, five to 10 years or whatever people might want to believe. Um, and so I also think uh, there's one other thing that um, is really worrying about the immediate future for Tesla. And that is um, the fact that they've taken customer money for uh, what's called full self-driving. And uh, 
I have very serious doubts that that's something that they will be able to deliver, at least as they sold it. Um, and I think that it's already had a very corrosive effect on one of Tesla's most important assets, which is faith in Elon Musk. If they are indeed unable to deliver uh, full self-driving, the risks both for the business, but also for civil liability and even potentially criminal charges, uh, I think is very real. And I think that that's, to me, in the, in the short term over the next few years, if they're unable to deliver that, confidence in this company will, will, will collapse. And, and the way they've set it up, it's kind of all or nothing. You either fully believe it or you're just incredibly skeptical. And I, I, I worry that um, if they don't deliver that and they're not financially sustainable, and, and especially if there's a downturn, they could go bankrupt extremely quickly. And in fact, they've, they've nearly gone bankrupt numerous times throughout their history. I should state that I'm on the record as saying that Tesla is overvalued. It's fair market value of common stock may actually be zero, meaning that the company may end up in bankruptcy sooner than we, than we think. This is David Kirsch, who we heard from back in episode one. So Tesla, I think, is in a lot of trouble. And that is, I think, becoming conventional wisdom. It's, I wrote about this two years ago and have been saying it for a long time. I don't think that the future of electric vehicles depends upon Tesla at this point. I think that train has left the proverbial station. I think that ship has sailed. Use whatever transportation metaphor you'd like. So in some sense, it doesn't really matter what happens to Tesla. Ultimately, Tesla needs to go bankrupt in order to become sustainable. I think they've, they, they not only need to reboot the image of what, where is the company being successful and, and what, does that, what kind of company should it then be. I think they have to back away from, from the mass market ambitions. You know, I think a partnership with an automaker makes a lot of sense um, because then they can use parts from there you know, that they've developed with suppliers and things like that. Um, but I think that, that between the undesirable assets like the factory, um, the factory is also extremely dysfunctional, huge amounts of debt and totally unrealistic investor uh, uh, expectations that were required to sort of keep raising this money. Those are all things that need to be left behind for Tesla to move forward on a sustainable basis. I think that their approach was the right one. I just think that you know every time that Tesla comes out with a car, it's kind of a bet the company sort of project where everyone, it's all hands on deck to, to get the car done. They're not really at an Apple-like stage where they've got multiple product lines and multiple business units all focusing on these individual products. Like Each product launch is sort of mission critical. This is Bloomberg reporter Dana Hull. I do have a lot of questions about the company's finances and the turnover of executives. I mean, I think that they are always skating by and, I mean, things are sort of more uh, tenuous on the financial side than I think people realize. That said, I, I think Tesla's working on all kinds of things behind the scenes that no one really has any insight into. And as a company, you know, we just don't really know that much about what goes on there. So for me, it's always, it's kind of like putting together a big jigsaw puzzle where I feel like... Tesla is involved in so many industries, you know, automotive, solar, utility. They're really doing a lot across a lot of industries, but I'm always eager to get a sort of more of a handle on what's coming next, what else is in their pipeline in terms of secured contracts, and who's doing what. The difficulty with 
a company like Tesla is that even its least expensive automobile sells for something around $35,000 or $40,000. This is Harvey Pitt, former chair of the SEC. We are talking, therefore, about a product that is very expensive for average and somewhat below average Americans. It is um, not a problem that is endemic solely to Tesla, but it is nonetheless one uh, major difficulty. At the outset of the existence of a company like Tesla, it can pay for a lot of the kinds of services it needs by printing uh, paper. It can print stock and make stock available. And the promise that the company holds forth can potentially drive the market price of the stock while the company gets over the initial hurdles that any startup company faces. In Tesla's case, whatever the length of that period is, it appears to have ended a while ago, but Tesla is not yet capable of realizing on its very strong promise. So the fact that startup companies or tech companies rely more on stock rather than uh, out-of-pocket cash is a very common phenomenon. But at some point, it becomes necessary to convert your promise into reality. And Harvey says that if Tesla can't realise their ambition and continuously hit the high targets they set for themselves, it could cause serious repercussions for the company. And I believe that many people in viewing the marketplace would say that Tesla is now in a very dangerous period where its continued failure to achieve more of the results everyone has come to expect could conceivably uh, deal a very serious body blow to the company. Every day that it fails to deliver on its magnificent promise puts the company in continuing jeopardy. So can Tesla survive without Elon? I believe right now it probably can't. On the creative side, Mr. Musk has credibility. People correctly perceive him as having creative genius. The real question is, can Tesla survive without somebody 
who is experienced and who can behave like an adult actually operating the business while Mr. Musk continues to do his magic with respect to the creation of modern vehicles that take advantage of electrical power. To me, that is really um, the fundamental question. I think that Tesla desperately needs what Mr. Musk can give it, but it also desperately needs what I think Mr. Musk is unable to give it, namely adult experienced leadership. I think it needs both. It's difficult to predict exactly where Tesla will end up. A third potential outcome could be that a traditional manufacturer acquires Tesla. But at least at this point in time, that seems unlikely. They will either become the dominant electric vehicle maker in the world. They'll have, you know, a factory cranking out cars in China and they will just sort of take the world by storm or you know, they will, <laughs> or or, the, or they'll be maybe you know taken over by someone else if, and uh, you know potentially be acquired. So I I actually don't really know. On some days I feel very optimistic. On some days I'm more pessimistic. One of the scariest things about Tesla is that they are playing and they have been for some time playing um, such a confidence game where where confidence and and faith in Elon Musk is so fundamental to their ability to survive to raise the money they need to survive. Um, as well as to the appeal of their cars and everything else, they have a very hard time now sort of pivoting, changing plans, and being more pragmatic. Um, And especially as you get into the mass market, uh, pragmatism becomes uh, the most important thing. So, And and I think ultimately with Tesla, um, because they have to take these sort of really tough steps to, to become what I would see as a sustainable automaker, to, to get what I see as their opportunity to become a, a lasting, sustainable player in, in the car business. It requires stepping back from big promises and big commitments and really changing the attitude. And, and what this company does is it bluffs its way forward, even when everything is stacked against it. And you know this is part of what makes them so admirable in certain sense. They, they've overcome impossible odds because they're willing to, to kind of bluff their way through but um, I think that their, their chance of, of any kind of lasting success at this point um, is so slim, certainly with the full self-driving. Um, you know, I think they, they need to uh, kind of give themselves a fresh start so that the good parts of Tesla can continue and continue to have the impact that they've had on, this, on the whole industry and on the market and bring them all towards um, more electric vehicles and leave behind the, uh, the sort of toxic aspects of the company. The past decade has seen the popularisation of the electric car. EVs are now cool and they're good for the planet. But would we be at this same moment in time without Tesla? That's a really good question. So I think Tesla definitely had a tipping role here. Now that they just took kind of a a Silicon Valley type disruptor attacker mindset to this and simply proved to the market that it's possible to produce a an electric vehicle that consumers want to buy. So there was definitely a kind of proof of concept role that Tesla played. Battery technology matured 
roughly around that time. Uh, so it, it was definitely more complex than Tesla did this, but they they were part of the mix and they were one of the many factors that that led to the the rise of EVs and kind of the tipping point in in in, in commercial viability of electric vehicles that we're seeing right now. So given that Tesla as a business struggles financially, and that they're now not the only manufacturer making electric cars, why are Tesla having this cultural moment that other car companies just aren't? Tesla's been at it longer. In one sense, at least branding and media, they have an early mover's advantage. This is Laura Kolodny from CNBC.com. First mover's advantage doesn't always uh, turn out to be true or long-lasting, but they definitely have it where brand, marketing, and media are concerned. The other thing is, you know, Tesla is partly responsible for restarting this electric vehicle revolution that had been set aside, you know, with the um, abandonment of the EV1 and earlier efforts. Uh, Martin Eberhardt and Mark Tarpening and, you know, Elon Musk as an early investor, at least, uh, are really responsible for bringing about an awakening that electrification could work now. Tesla came up with the advent of social media. They are dominant as far as a presence on platforms like Twitter and Reddit. Even though Elon Musk removed Tesla's official presence from Facebook, there are so many communities. Tesla has its own TMC forums, and in part, it's generational, right? It was Web 2.0, dawn of the electric car. If you were early to those platforms, you could have a great presence there, and that's what we're seeing. It's really helping their their brand and their identity. And they're also, they're popular with a younger generation. They're trusted and popular with sort of gamers who are very online and social. And again, it's it's good for their SEO. It's good for their presence on social. It's good for a living conversation about the brand and the cars and uh, their charismatic but difficult CEO. It's not surprising to me that they have that given all those years invested into online community building. Do you think that other manufacturers actually have a chance of catching Tesla right now? And and especially, I guess, given that Tesla produced their own batteries and the other manufacturers don't. So GM just announced a big partnership to manufacture batteries with LG Chem in the United States. And LG is a supplier to Tesla. So that could change the equation. I think that for years, uh, Tesla skeptics and short sellers and so forth have overestimated the competition, but it's starting to get interesting. So Tesla will be dealing with a more competitive landscape than ever before. In China, you know, there's already BYD and Rowe and a, a number of others that make electric vehicles pretty successfully in a, in a number of different classes. China's a whole different puzzle ball, if you will. But I, I mean, do I think, uh, hey, I'm sure um, Honeywell never anticipated like Dell and then Apple, right? I mean, who's gonna, <laughs> it's, it's really hard to say. Tesla, again, um, first mover's advantage works when it's working and it works in some arenas and it's, it's not always long lasting. Uh, think back to BlackBerry and so forth. It's, um, it's really hard to say, and it's really not my place. But so far, Tesla's getting a great response to other technology, not just their battery with its range, but um, 
People are eager for uh, autopilot-type features, safety assist, and they enjoy the entertainment, um, like the video games. And dog mode should be a standard, I think. So it's funny because I report, I report on the news about Tesla and its triumphs and struggles, and people will paint reporters uh, as, you know, the enemy. We can't help what's going on, right? It's, it's like there are some triumphs, there are hardships, um, but it's, I'm not a hater. Tesla's like God's gift to a reporter because it's um, interesting, ambitious, spontaneous, crazy. They make good and bad decisions. But basically, you know, I'm able to recognize like what resonates with drivers and and prospective customers of Tesla because I talk to them all the time. And again, I think they're I think they're winning not just um, like the tree huggers and the EV proponents who are like into car tech, but they they are getting people because of the design aesthetic. They're getting people who are just super fans of Elon or the whole Tesla vibe. They are getting people who want autopilot and beyond, who believe that full self-driving will be real um, and soon. And uh, so they can compete. They can differentiate on a lot of levels, too. It'll be a really interesting competitive landscape as all this shapes up. Throughout this series, we've looked deeply at the EV market and Tesla specifically. And despite all their faults, Tesla is a company that inspires loyalty unlike any other manufacturer. So what actually inspires their customers to ignore the competition and put down their money for a vehicle that may be years away from delivery? Here's Ralph Schwiesinger, who we met in episode one. To begin with, like when you, when you look at what makes you buy a car, like the first car you buy from a company is a salesperson who gives it to you. Because you, know, someone, you need someone who shows you the car, you want to test drive it, at least in Europe that's the case. However, the second car is sold by someone else. The second car is sold by the guy who's doing the service. And what we experienced is that the people who work for Tesla, they are the ones who make the difference because they give you the feeling that you are important and that you play a major role in the whole concept. And they try to treat you very, very well. They may not be able to resolve everything right away, but that's not the point. The thing is, if I'm told I need to wait for something good, I'm happy to wait because someone told me I need to wait a little bit. If someone doesn't tell me that and you know doesn't manage my expectations well, I might react a little different. But Tesla does that quite good. So they, they, they talk to you as a, as a client, as a customer. Um, we are aware of what's going on. Um, the, the product is the right product, the plan is the right plan, and actually, it's, as Nicole said, it's not only cars, much more than that. And it's that much more than that why we have the car and why we were willing to spend more money on a, on a, on a car than you know, any other brand that is comparable, because there's more behind it. I mean, I don't know whether I would want to buy a car from someone who's lying to me. I don't want that. If that honestly means I need to wait for a little bit longer, well, okay, he's honest, I buy it. Simple as that. Thanks to everyone we spoke with for this series. There were many more voices who didn't make it into the final episodes, but we really appreciate everyone who took the time to speak with us. We did reach out to Tesla on multiple occasions for involvement in this series. However, they declined. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Tesla, then I encourage you to listen to Reveal's great investigation into Tesla's Fremont factory and The City, who recently published an investigation into Tesla's Nevada Gigafactory. Supercharged is a production of Lawson Media and is hosted by me, Christopher Lawson. 
Mixing and production by James Parkinson. Jasmine Mee Lee is our assistant producer. Andrew Millist created our artwork and Nick Buchanan composed our theme track. Other music in this episode from Breakmaster Cylinder and our ad music comes from Epidemic Sound. For more information about the series or to find episode transcripts and sources, head to chargedshow.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Charged Show. If you enjoyed Season 1 of Supercharged and would love to see more content like this, then I encourage you to share it with your friends. And if you'd like to support us financially, you can do so at chargedshow.com slash donate. Thanks for listening.